Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. I'm going to read the first 14 verses. Romans, chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. The title of my message this afternoon is Of Corruption and Conversion. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be, that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit which dwelleth in you. Therefore, brethren, We are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we now open your word again. Father, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful and to declare your word um, truly, and clearly, and I pray that you'd open all of our hearts to receive it as we ought. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are looking at TULIP, and really the order I'm following is the order that the Synod of Dort followed, which if you want to use the TULIP, it's ULTIP. Um, so we've looked at the U unconditional election, which is that which just says before the foundation of the world, God chose some out of the mass of fallen humanity unconditionally to save and to rescue for everlasting life through Christ, limited atonement that in time Christ came and to fulfill the will of the Father in election, died, satisfied the claims, the demands of God's justice for their sake, took their sin, purged their sin. And in time now, the Spirit comes. So this salvation is a very Trinitarian thing. The Spirit comes and applies the redemption purchased by Christ to the elect. So we're going to be looking at that this afternoon, looking at conversion, corruption and conversion. So we're looking at the T and the I together. Total depravity, which talks about human corruption and irresistible grace or spiritual conversion. And I want to remind you that as we look at these doctrines, they don't define the center of the Christian faith, but these are, um, as I put it in our first last evening, these are gates in the perimeter of the faith. They are important points to the center. God is at the center. The glory of God is at the center. We don't want to put the planets for the sun, but these doctrines are related to the center because they help to remind us that God himself is, in fact, 
at the center of all things. And in particular, that salvation is of the Lord. The reason why I chose the text that I did is because both the corruption of man and the conversion of man are highlighted in these verses. What you see unfolding here is a contrast. Perhaps you saw it as we read this, the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. And the fact that the flesh is a certain state that people are in and the spirit is a certain state that people are in. And Paul talks about the consequences of being in one state or the other. And so he tells us something about the problem of human corruption and then the power of spiritual conversion. The problem of human corruption and the power of spiritual conversion. I want you to hear what the way the Apostle Paul explains what it means to be in the flesh. This is what we normally refer to by saying that someone is not born again or someone is not regenerate. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in the flesh? Well, Paul unpacks that here. So for example, especially in verses 5-8, through eight, he says those who are in the flesh mind. They set their hearts on the things of the flesh, but they that are the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So a person who is in the flesh cares about minds, sets their thoughts and their affections on the things of the flesh. By the way, if if you want to know how this is worked out, Paul talks about the works of the flesh, doesn't he? In Galatians chapter 5. Then in verse 6, Paul says, to be carnally minded or to have the mind of the flesh is death. So this is a controlling thing. It it, it causes a person to... um, to mind, to, to, to live in a certain way, and this leads to death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. The carnal mind is enmity against God. So this person which is enslaved to the world, the flesh and the devil, verse 5, who is in a state of spiritual death, death verse 6, this a person who's in this state, a person who has this carnal, this mind of the flesh, is enmity against God. That is, they are hostile to God. I cannot imagine a worse place to be. To be against God. And Paul goes on to say in verse 7, here's how that enmity is worked out. For it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, when we talk about the doctrine of total depravity, what we are, ta- what we're, what we're, what we're not saying is that people are as bad as they can possibly be. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that a person can be a good, you can have lost neighbors and they can be good neighbors. I'm thankful for God's restraining grace upon humanity. If things were as bad as they could possibly be, we'd all be living in hell. But thank God this is not the way it is. But what it does mean is that the totality of the human nature is corrupted by sin. Our mind is corrupted by sin. Our affections are corrupted by sin. Our will is corrupted by sin. And we are so corrupt. We are so corrupt. We are so fallen that Paul uses language like um, inability here. So they that are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot. They are not subject to the law of God Neither the need can they be. So this is not John Calvin speaking. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. The, this, this state of spiritual death, this sp- state of being in the flesh is so bad that it renders men 
willingly hostile to God and unable to extricate themselves from this state. And by the way, when we say unable to extricate themselves from this state, um, that doesn't mean that, that people want to be saved and God holds them down and keeps them from coming. This is not the case at all. Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast them out. The problem is not that God keeps people from getting into heaven. The problem is that people don't want God. They do not want to come. That's where the cannot comes in. Jesus said in his day, you will not come to me that you might have life. The Greek there is, you do not desire. You do not want to come to me that you might have life. So settled is that will not that it really reduces to a cannot. This is why Jesus says in John 6.44, no man can come to me unless the Father who sent me draw him. Again, it's not people crying out for salvation. It's people don't want. People are in chains and they love it. People are dead and they don't know better. Go back to verse 3. The Apostle Paul says, what the law could not do. So being in the state of flesh, the law could not do something in that it was weak through the flesh. What could the law not do? Well, Paul explains, I think, back in chapter 7. Let's let's go back there for just a moment. Um, Paul says this in verse 7. Is the law sin? God forbid. No, I had not known sin except by the law, for I had not known lust except the law I said thou shalt not covet. So Paul was a great Pharisee. And in fact, he tells us later that regarding the righteousness of the law, he was blameless. And I think what that means is that no one can point to the Apostle Paul and say, hey Paul, you are not keeping Exodus 20 verse whatever. Um, Paul was outwardly blameless. He was a law keeper. But one day Paul realized as, as zealous as he was to keep God's law, there was a spiritual element to the law that he missed. And this came home to him in the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. You see, all the other commandments, you can kind of say, justify, I've kept these. I don't have any idols in my home. You know, I'm faithful to my wife. I don't steal. I don't lie, cheat, etc. But Paul realized that the desire for those things, <laughs> the desire for what God's forbidden is also a sin. And this, this killed Paul. And Paul explains what happened to him. He said, but sin taking occasion by the commandment, so sin, the, the law rose up in its spirituality and Paul became condemned. But what happens? What, what happened with Paul is that the flesh, the flesh kicked in. This is how he describes it. Sin taking occasion by the commandment. So it's, it's not like Paul realizes the spirituality of the commandment and Paul says, Oh, I got to get my life in order. And this, and now, now I know how to. To, to be a good lawkeeper. Now I know I've just got to get my heart in order and, and not desire these bad things. What happened was, as Paul tried to bring his life into conformity to the spirituality of God's law, the flesh rose up and said, no. Sin took occasion by the commandment and wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. The law came up, God said no, and the flesh said yes. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? I mean, listen, our parents say no, and we want to say yes. Our boss says no, we want to say, we want to say yes. The government says no, we want to say yes. This is human nature. In God's law, God's the ultimate authority. God says no, and the human nature in us, the flesh said, wants to say no. That's what, so God says don't lust, and the flesh rises up and says lust. 
For I was alive on the law once. And notice Paul said, I lived, I lived in blissful ignorance for a long time. But when the commandment came in force and in spirituality, sin revived. The law did not kill sin. It revived sin. God's law stood up and my flesh stood up against it. And I died, Paul said. I died to my delusions of grandeur. My friends, if you've ever tried to please God in the strength of your own flesh, you know what I'm talking about. Now, this does not mean that there's any excuse for sin. We, it is true that we are by nature sinful. But just as the holiness of God is infinitely admirable from the fact that He naturally does what is good, so the unholiness of man is infinitely abominable from the fact that we naturally do what is evil. This doesn't let us off the hook. Yeah, we, we may, we may be, we may be, uh, a generation of vipers, but you don't not kill a snake because it is its nature to bite. You kill it precisely because it is its nature to bite. And God is not to blame because we are naturally sinful. And by the way, again, it's not, it's, it's not as if we want to be saved and we, and God keeps us back. Rather, we cheerfully and willfully are hostile against God. We are not neutral. And there, there's only two categories of people, by the way. Every person in this room, you are either in the flesh right now or you're in the spirit. If you do not belong to Christ, you're in the flesh and you are hostile to God. You may say, well, I'm not. Yes, you are. You are not submitting yourselves to God's law. You are not submitting yourself to his will. You want to do your own thing. You want to live out a life of self-sovereignty. That's in the flesh. And the thing that you need, the thing that every human being needs on this planet is the power of spiritual conversion. I love the way Paul puts it in verse 3, what the law could not do. So what does the law do? What does the law actually do? The law stands up and says, thou shalt not. It's written there in tables of stone. Moses got the law from God on Mount Sinai. He brings it down and immediately breaks the law there in front of the children of Israel as they're bowing down before this golden calf. All the law can do in terms of the covenant that God gave to the children of Israel is tell us what not to do or tell us what to do. But what the law could not do is give us the strength and the power to actually fulfill it. But this is what God does through Christ. What the law could not do in that it was weak to the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. The only way that anyone can be saved is because God has entered into history and done what we could not do. It took the death of Christ to take our sin, to take God's wrath away from us. In order that the righteousness, verse 4, of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So because of what Christ has done, the law of the Spirit of life, verse 2, enables us to be free from the law or the power of sin and Death. So Christ, God, God chose the people for the foundation of the world. Christ died for them. The Spirit comes to apply the work of redemption to them. He doesn't just make us savable. He doesn't put us into a neutral position. So sometimes you'll hear um, those who do not embrace the doctrines of grace say, yes, we believe in grace. We even believe in the necessity of grace. But what, what they, if you listen to them carefully, what they're saying is that grace 
takes someone who's depraved and puts them into a neutral position, which now they can decide for themselves. But that's not what we see here. What we see here is that God takes someone who is in the flesh and puts them in the spirit, not someplace between. Again, there's only two categories here. There's not the unregenerate and the regenerate and the pre-regenerate. You're the one or the other. How do you go from being in the flesh to being in the spirit? Not by free will, but by the power of the spirit of God. There is corroboration all over the Bible. I want to point you to one passage in Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse, beginning in verse 23. Actually, I'll drop down to verse 25. The prophet says, I will sprinkle, this is like God speaking through the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. By the way, when Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless a man is born of water and of the Spirit, this is the verse he's thinking of when he says that. He's not talking about baptism, is, is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart also I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will take the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Okay. Who causes all this to happen? I mean, who is saying, I will, I will, I will, I will? God is saying that. And as a result of God doing that, we now say, I will. When you're in the flesh, God says, thou shalt. And we say, no way, Jose. But when God regenerates a man, he changes them. He he makes them a new creation. Now we're willing to say, yes, Lord, here I am. Send me. This is what we mean by irresistible grace. It doesn't, again, it does not mean that God drags a person kicking and screaming into the kingdom. I mean, sometimes it may seem like that, but he doesn't. He changes our will. God does heart surgery. He reforms our hearts so that we willingly come. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. I love this. Um, let me just, let me read this passage here. Reading verse 20, 1 Corinthians 1. The, the, the Corinthians were glorying in their wisdom as if that had anything to do with why they were Christians. And Paul's reminding them, look, you did not become a Christian because of your wisdom. You do not remain a Christian because of your wisdom. Stop glorying in that ridiculousness. He says, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the college professor? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. This very thing that is to the Jesus stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. Well, well then why in the world? This is, this is, this is, in other words, this is not very marketable. Because everybody doesn't like it for one reason or the other. So how in the world does anyone become a Christian? Paul says, here's the reason why. But in those who are called. This is not a reference to the general call of the gospel. This is a reference to God's powerful, effectual call by which he changes us and draws us. It's what Jesus is saying when he says, no man can come unto the Father 
unless he draws them. Unto those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So what was before a stumbling block and foolishness is now power and wisdom. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brothers, had that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things in the world to confound the wise, and God has chosen the weak things in the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised as God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So why are you a Christian? If you're a Christian this afternoon, why are you a Christian? Of him are you in Christ Jesus. Is the, is this God, the calling of God which has made Christ to you the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, I know some people will, will hear this and will come to some unbiblical conclusions. One is that, well, if it takes the grace of the irresistible grace of God to bring an unconverted man into a state of um, faith and repentance, well then, you know, it's, it's okay for me to remain in sin and unbelief. I'll just wait until God's absent from on high. And what I'm saying is, that that's the wrong response to have. Because sin is still sin, even if you're in a state of spiritual death. It's, it is sin not to repent. That's why Paul says, doesn't he, in Acts 17, preaching not to a bunch of Christians, but to a bunch of pagans, God commands all men everywhere to do what? Repent. It's the reason why Jesus says in John 16 that the Holy Spirit will come and convict people of sin. And what is the sin that he convicts people of? Unbelief. Because they believe not on me. It is sin not to repent. It is sin not to believe. And so therefore, no, it's not okay for you to remain in repentance and unrepentance and unbelief. We need to remember that this inability is not external. I'm trying to emphasize this. It's not God holding people down. It's not as if people want to come, but God, Christ kicks them away. They do not come. Why? Because they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. That's Christ's own explanation, isn't it? On the other hand, Jesus says, all who come to me, I will never cast out. So no, this is no excuse. The, the effect this doctrine should have on you is this. It should it should, it should make you go prostrate before the throne of God and say, Lord, only you can say, I, I lay myself at your feet. I beg you for your grace. And if you're a Christian, you keep coming to the throne of grace and saying, God, you got me saved. You keep me saved. I'm coming to the throne of grace to obtain help, to obtain mercy in my time of need. Now, what kind of people should this make us? Let me suggest four things. It should make us a humble people. It should make us a holy people, a heralding people, and a happy people. 
First of all, it should make us a humble people. Look what Paul says in verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live after the flesh. What, what's Paul saying? We, he doesn't say it explicitly, but it's implied here, isn't it? We are not debtors to the flesh. There's been this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. So fill in the blank, right? Paul, Paul expects we can do that. If we are not debtors to the flesh, what are we debtors to? The spirit of God. We are debtors to grace. So in other words, again, I do not come into the kingdom of God bringing anything. The gate is too narrow. You want to, you can't squeeze your good works through the gate. You gotta come naked. You gotta come empty. You gotta come holding out an empty hand. So we recognize that the only reason, if I'm saved, the only reason why I'm saved is not because I was smarter than someone else or better than someone else. It is because God saved me in His free grace. And that ought, so in other words, a spirit of pride is a contradiction. Despising others is a contradiction. Let no man boast. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? Listen to the way he puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 in verse 7 as he presses the matter home to the Corinthians. He says, who makes you differ? Who makes you different from someone else? And what do you have that you do not receive? And these are, of course, rhetorical questions. The answer is obvious, isn't it? Nothing. Now, if you, if you received it, why are you boasting? Why are you glorying as if you did not receive it? Stop it, Paul says. You're acting as if you have something to do with your spiritual state. It is a free gift of grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Brothers and sisters, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find the bread of life. Let the giver have the glory. God. It ought to make us a humble people. Not a people who are proud. Not a people who are striving. Not a people trying to make much of themselves. But people who are making much of God. Secondly, it ought to make us a holy people. Paul says this in verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. In other words, you see the word for there. The the motivation to kill the deeds of the body is the grace of God in Christ, the Spirit who regenerates us and puts us in in the realm of the Spirit. And if that's true of you, Paul is saying, kill the deeds of the body. Again, let me go to this passage in Galatians, just in case you want something concrete here. What is what does Paul mean by deeds of the flesh? Well, here it is. <clears throat> I'm so thankful the Bible, the Bible does not deal with sin in general. It's very specific. And if we're going to be serious about holiness, we have to be specific too. It's the easiest thing in the world saying, I'm a sinner, and uh, God, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. No, I mean, if, if you can't point to anything in your life, then you really don't think you're a sinner. Here, here are some of the deeds of the flesh. Paul says, Galatians 5.19. By the way, you'll notice this in verse 18. He says, but if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Those are the deeds of the flesh. 
In the very next verse in Romans 8, verse 14, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, being led by the Spirit is being led to put to death the deeds of the body. Now here's what they are. Adultery. Fornication. Uncleanness. Lasciviousness. Idolatry. Witchcraft. Hatred. Variance. Emulations. Envy. Wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says something very similar here. If you live to the flesh, you shall what? Die. You will not inherit God's kingdom. You are in the flesh. So we ought to be motivated, if we're in the spirit, to put these things to death. How do you do this? Well, number one, you have to do this at the level of desire and affection. The desires and affections, right? Um, what does the Proverbs say? In Proverbs 4.23, the heart, out of the heart, are the issues of life. We need to fight sin, not simply on the level of stopping certain behaviors, which you've got to do that. But you got to start with the heart because that's where everything comes from. You have to fight not against just think you need to turn from loving and rolling the sin over in your mind to hating it. And to do that, we need to guard the inlets to the heart. We need to guard the ears and the eyes. The apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 14, to make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. The, the psalmist says in Psalm 101, Verses 2 and 3, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. We need to be like that. So we were working on the level of the heart. We're also preventing things from getting there. And then I, I think we need to be held accountable to others. We need to live out Hebrews 3, 12 through 13, where the apostle tells us to... Um, exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, when it comes to personal holiness, I think a lot of times we just totally miss that. We think that we can do this on our own. And it's true that if we're born again, God's given us the resources of the Spirit, but God has also given us the means of grace. And one of that, one of those means of grace is the fellowship of believers who hold us responsible, who are exhorting us, lest we be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I need people in my life. And you need people in your life. And if you don't have people in your life who can come to you and confront you, you need to get people in your life. And don't think that you are immune to that sort of thing. Let the one who thinks he stands, Paul says, take heed lest you fall. And then we need to remember what's at stake here. We've mentioned this already, but if you live out of the flesh, you shall, what? Die. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There is not a day but sin is prevails or is prevailed upon. Or so, and so it will be in this world. He's right. Holiness is not an option. And then again, um, 
Remember the means of grace. Remember the fellowship of believers, prayer, the word, the gathering of the saints. God calls us to be a holy people. We are to be a humble people, a holy people, a heralding people. This is Romans 8. But the whole point of Romans is about the gospel to the ends of the world. Paul says that Christ gave him grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And in fact, the whole reason for the book of Romans is Paul has his mindset on a mission trip to Spain. And this church in Rome, which he hopes will be a a platform for future mission. He wants them to embrace this mission. So he's sharing the gospel that he's going to be bringing to the ends of the earth. He's saying, here's the gospel. I want you to be on board with me as I bring this to the ends of the earth. That's what Romans is about. Thank God for missions because we wouldn't have Romans without it. (coughs) We ought to be a heralding people. And the doctrines of grace don't keep us from being that. In fact, they ought to give us the courage to be that very thing. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. Remember that Jesus of Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even in the bonds. I love this. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure, what? All things for the elect's sakes, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. We ought to be a heralding people. And then finally, we ought to be a happy people. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And this, as we understand just how sovereign God is and how successful Jesus is and what He's done to us in our life and in our hearts that ought to make us the happiest people because no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how bad my situation gets, there are certain unchangeable realities that are rooted in God who never changes. Change and decay and all around I see, although that changes not, abide with me. Well, let me close this afternoon. If you are a believer, brother, sister, thank God. Live out that reality. The grace of God has changed your life. The grace of God is keeping you. Grow in that grace. It, it can be discouraging sometimes. I know sin can get in us and it can begin to lie to us and we can start believing those lies. But you need to remember that the grace, the one who's in us is greater than the one who's against us. I love this verse in Romans 6.14. I say to myself all the time because I need to. But Paul says, sin shall not have dominion over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. What is grace that frees you from the dominion of sin? That's what Paul's talking about. Thank God. Are you an unbeliever this morning, this afternoon? What has Paul been saying here? You are in rebellion as God. There is no neutral ground. There is one thing you must do. Repent. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Fall on your face before God Almighty and ask Him to do the things that Paul describes here. And the encouragement of the Bible is the one who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And when you have been embraced by the love of God, you look back and say, of Him am I in Christ Jesus, who was made for me redemption, wisdom, righteousness, redemption. Thing, and and we, we boast not in ourselves, but in the grace and the sovereign grace of Almighty God through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these realities. Lord, thank you for the grace that rescues all of us. Long are imprisoned, spirits lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Your eye diffused a quickening ray. We rose the dungeon flame with light. Our chains fell off. Our heart was free. We rose went forth and followed thee all by grace. We thank you for that. We thank you for that reality. We look, we look, and Lord, it, it encourages us as we fight the sin in our lives right now, as we look forward to uncertain times to know that your grace is sovereign and you are a successful and victorious redeemer. And so we look to you in humble trust and faith. May you be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.